Lord, we do acknowledge, Lord, that it is your breath in our lungs, Lord. Lord, that you are the air that we breathe, Lord. You're our very life, Lord God. Lord, help us to remember in spite of all of the trials and challenges, Lord, that you are still good, you are still God, and you are still on your throne in heaven, Lord. Lord, that you manage and you oversee the affairs of men, Father, and yet you still give us freedom to choose. You give us free will, Lord God, and that's where we get into so much trouble. Uh, But Lord, we do thank you for saving us. We thank you for loving us. We thank you, Lord, that you have a plan for each one of our lives, Father, and that if we walk in your will, Lord God, we will be blessed. It is the promise in your word, Lord. And so, Father, tonight, we ask that you would meet us in this place, Father, you would speak to us through your word, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts tonight and keep our eyes just fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who is coming back soon for your bride. So bless each one that's here, each one that's watching tonight. And we thank you for this evening. Please put your hedge of protection around us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening, everyone. You're all kind of sitting in different places tonight. Got to mix it up. We're entering an interesting time uh, with our calendar where it's a It's a palindrome, sort of a calendar situation right now. It's the first time in a thousand years, they say, that um, uh, the inauguration day will be a palindrome. One, two, zero, two, one. And then backwards, it's one, two, zero, two, one. So uh, pretty interesting. A little bit of trivia there for you tonight. And I want to read quickly just something from Jigs here. This was really good. I'm sure... I don't know if all of you get the trendsetters email. You could contact our church office if you want to be included in Jig's uh, trendsetters email list. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you what he said. <clears throat> and he, he told me I could share this with you uh, this evening. So he may be even watching. He said, good morning, trendsetters. What a great day to be alive, living in the USA and being a child of God. I have mixed emotions regarding the inauguration of our new president today. I fear the incoming wave of liberalism will push our country even further away from God and the principles by which it was founded. However, I also believe that it is also under the complete control and authority of our creator, and in the long run, it will bring glory and honor to him. This is an opportunity for us, his church, to get on our knees and pray as never before, for President Biden and the incoming administration. Hearts can be changed. If you don't believe it, look in the mirror and remember who you were before you gave your life to him. He says, prayerfully consider this exhortation from Paul, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he continues, I came across another article that I want to share with you today. The Bible is pretty clear that his church will come under attack 
And we're beginning to experience that even in our own country today. The enemy is nonstop at driving wedges between God's people and the rest of the world. This article comes from the perspective of a man that was imprisoned for his faith. And then it goes on with this um, article from Tony Perkins from the Family Research Council entitled Five Ways to Prepare for the Days Ahead. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the article. But I just wanted to share what, what Jigs read, although the article is very, very good. So if you're interested in getting this article and getting this email uh, from Jigs Travis, you can contact our church office tomorrow and we will forward it uh, to you so you could have the entire thing. But I, I just thought that was a real encouragement. Uh, I know a lot of people are real discouraged and kind of deflated uh, by, by what is happening today in our country. And really it's more the idea that God is giving us over because of our wickedness. That's what I felt for many, many years. I've been preaching about the judgment of God coming upon America for as long as I've been a pastor. Because I really do believe that America deserves to be judged by God. I'm not talking about you sitting here, but... The rest of America is not like you who are sitting here tonight. The rest of America is pretty wicked as far as what the Bible describes as wickedness. And again, there are a lot of patriots and there's a lot of good people in this country, but patriotism does not equal godliness or righteousness or holiness. Don't ever get those two things confused politically. Oftentimes we get drawn into politics as Christians, and I'm, you know... Um, I'm friends with a lot of people who are high-level politicians. I've worked on the staff of politicians. Uh, and I believe we have to vote and we have to be involved in the process. But our hope is not in politics. Jesus was not a Republican. Jesus was not a Democrat. Jesus was not an American. And Jesus said, I didn't come here to build a kingdom. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is in the world to come. And we have to always remember this and put our eyes and our hope in Jesus Christ. We are in Isaiah chapter 23 tonight, and I was going to try and tackle Isaiah 23 and 24, and I just decided to just stick with Isaiah 23 and kind of uh, take our time through Isaiah 23 instead of kind of blowing right through it and getting into Isaiah 24. I'm kind of anxious actually to get into Isaiah 24 because it's all about the Great Tribulation period, which I believe that we are on the cusp of the Great Tribulation period. And, you know, regardless of how this election went, certainly with Joe Biden in the White House and the socialist agenda that's coming from the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset that is being planned for our country, losing the Senate, etc., we are that much closer to the return of Jesus Christ to set up his kingdom and to rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years for the kingdom age and then forever and ever for all eternity. And so I believe that um, we are this much closer now to the rapture of the church and the return of Christ for us as his church. So we're in Isaiah 23. I've entitled this message, Pride Comes Before a Fall. Pride comes before a fall. Verse 1 of Isaiah 23. The burden against Tyre. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor. For the land of Cyrus, or Cyprus rather, it is revealed to them. So this is the oracle, or the burden or the proclamation against the city of Tyre. 
And really, this started uh, way back, several chapters ago in Isaiah. If you've been with us, you've seen all of these different oracles or burdens prophetically against all these nations, primarily the nations around the nation of Israel, but also including uh, Jerusalem and including Samaria or the nation uh, of Israel, the ten northern tribes also. God is pretty much declaring his judgment upon these nations for different reasons, and these were all future prophecies at the time that they were given. Isaiah uh, wrote this sometime around 700 B.C., uh, perhaps the late, uh, you know, uh, 690 B.C. or 695, some, sometime toward the latter part uh, of the uh, 7th century B.C. And so this would have been something that he was, was prophesying, Isaiah was prophesying, um, hundreds of years before it happened. Tyre actually was not completely uh, destroyed as a nation until Alexander the Great came along in 332 BC and wiped it out, as, as we'll see here tonight. And, and there's some amazing prophecies here. I, that's why I wanted to take some time. This is going to be kind of a little bit of a history lesson tonight. I just thought this is fascinating uh, to see how God knows the future, no matter what the atheists say and the agnostics and the people that don't believe in the uh, inspiration of scripture that God tells us the future in advance and this is another one of those examples with this prophecy against the city of Tyre. Now Tyre was the chief city of the Phoenician Empire. Some of you might remember if you studied ancient history the Phoenicians were a seafaring nation they uh, were merchants, they had a navy, and they had a fleet. This is in the ancient world. Tyre is, uh, according to Herodotus, one of the Greek historians, uh, was a 2,000-year-old city in 400 B.C. So this is a city that goes way back. One of the oldest cities in the world, possibly as old as 2,400 years before Christ, when it was founded. And they really, because they were a, uh, they had a navy and they were a seafaring people, uh, nobody could really uh, attack them. What they did is they built walls all around. This is on the Mediterranean Sea, northwest uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and, and they would uh, build these walls and, and had these gates. And then they built walls actually out into the ocean, into the Mediterranean Sea, to where nobody could really stop them. No, no army could invade them. They would just wall themselves in. They'd shut the gates uh, and then they would wait the invading armies out. They would be besieged, but they had these navies that went all over the Mediterranean Sea, these ships, and so they would be able to resupply themselves. They really never were able to be choked out by a siege like a regular city would be, and so the Phoenician Empire was one of the most powerful empires of the ancient world for a couple thousand years, according to the historians, and at the time that Isaiah was writing this, this was true uh, for the Phoenician Empire and for the city of Tyre and the city of Sidon, which was uh, there on the Mediterranean Sea as well. Uh, they, they really were unstoppable because they had the whole ocean at their beck and call, and nobody could really stop them. They just shut their gates. They'd wall themselves in. They had walls all the way out into the ocean to where if somebody tried to come around with a ship, they would take them down. They'd blast them, and they would just smash them. And so they really were impenetrable. And as a result of this, they became a very prideful sort of a city and a very prideful nation, the Phoenician uh, Empire. Again, it, this was an ancient city on the Mediterranean Sea. The, the Tyre was the capital city along with Sidon of the Phoenician Empire. It was a seaport. 
Uh, it was approximately 35 miles north of Mount Carmel and 28 miles west uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 28 miles west of Mount Hermon. So it was kind of in the northwestern part of, um, of, of Israel, but of course it wasn't part of Israel. Uh, Tyre was known in the scriptures uh, with King uh, Hiram, who was a friend of, uh, of King David, who helped him with providing lumber when David came to power. He was friends with Hiram, who was the king of Tyre, and they would take lumber and they would send it down through the Mediterranean into Joppa. And from Joppa, they took it into Jerusalem. And that's where they got most of the lumber from in order to build David's kingdom. Uh, certainly, the lumber uh, was sent from um, Tyre to build the Temple of Solomon. And so Tyre was a, a very well-known uh, city in Israel's history. It's actually mentioned in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 19. So that would have been way back about 1400 uh, to 1200 years uh, before Christ, that it was a powerful city uh, back then. And they had just this unstoppable navy. They had this navy that the, nobody in the ancient world could touch uh, for a very, very long time. Again, uh, it was a walled city into the Mediterranean. It was sieged at least five times in history, besieged by other armies, but never conquered until, well, Babylon came under Nebuchadnezzar in, in uh, about 585 B.C. After, after Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C., the Babylonian army went up north, west to Tyre to besiege the city of Tyre. It was a 12-year siege, historians tell us, and in the end, when... Nebuchadnezzar finally broke in the gates. I mean, they sieged the city from 585 to 573 B.C., and they finally broke through the gates uh, of Tyre. There was nobody left. What they did is they moved the whole city on their ships with their navy to an island, and they took all the spoils, they took everything and all the people to where when the Babylonians finally busted in the gates, it was all empty. Everything was gone. And so they really weren't destroyed until about 250 years later, when Alexander the Great came to power, the Grecian Empire. And this is one of the most famous stories in all of history uh, for um, military strategies and military victories. Alexander the Great was a brilliant young uh, uh, strategist when it came to war. He pretty much never lost a battle. And what he did in, in the, the 330s B.C., he was conquering, first he was conquering Greece, and he was conquering the whole area around the Mediterranean Sea before he, he went and started to move inland to, to India and so forth. And he sent messengers to the island of Tyre, because remember, the city had moved about a mile. They, they actually moved the city about a mile out into the Mediterranean Sea from the coastline. Uh, and he sent messengers to them and basically asked them to pay him tribute, and they refused. So what he did is he built, uh, he was a military man, but he wasn't a naval man. But he built a uh, kind of shoddy little navy, and he tried to attack the Phoenicians with his navy, and they just obliterated him. They obliterated Alexander the Great's navy. So he was so angry, and he wanted to get to this island. And what he did is he looked at this walled city, all these rocks, all these stones, and he had his men disassemble the whole, city, the whole ancient city of Tyre that was there on the coastline uh, of the Middle East on the Mediterranean Sea, and they threw the stones into the ocean, and they built a land bridge that went one mile from the, 
from the, the coast all the way out to this island. And then he marched his army across this land bridge that he made with the old rubble and the old rocks and the old walls of the city. And he obliterated Tyre and pretty much wiped it off the map. As a matter of fact, Tyre was so badly destroyed that they didn't even find evidence of this city on this island because Alexander the Great just obliterated them because they dared to challenge him uh, in 332 B.C. It was only the biblical archaeologists, I learned this from Pastor Chuck, that, uh, that discovered this ancient Tyre island, the city of Tyre that was moved to the island in modern times because there were fishermen that were out there with their nets, casting their nets over the rocks, and these archaeologists saw the rocks and they thought, well, these rocks don't really belong way out here. These are more, you know, they belong by the coast. And so they began to then dig and realize that these were the rocks of the ancient city of Tyre. And what's amazing, as you're going to see, is God predicted exactly what would happen hundreds and hundreds of years uh, before this took place. So we see here in verse 1, and then we're, we're also going to go back to, um, or forward actually to, Ezekiel's prophecy. Ezekiel has a lot of details about this as well. But we read in verse 1 of Isaiah 23, the burden against Tyre, wail you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor, from the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. So again, this was written approximately 700 BC. Uh, Tarshish was a port city in southern Europe, likely modern-day Spain, uh, the city of Tarshish, an ancient city. And that was an outpost of the city of Tyre and of the Phoenician Empire because they were trading throughout the whole Mediterranean Sea. They actually were uh, merchants who would take grain from Egypt at the Delta Nile uh, that came into the Mediterranean from, e from the Nile River in Egypt, and they would take the grain, and they would sell it all over the Middle East. They were very, very fabulously wealthy uh, because of their navy and because of their uh, merchandising. But he's saying, Well, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so there is no house and no harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Cyprus was uh, and is an island there uh, in, in the area of Greece, in the Mediterranean Sea, that they also would stop over on Cyprus, their sailors and their navy, and they would uh, rest there, and they would refresh there, and they would, you know, kind of uh, resupply themselves as they were traversing through the Mediterranean Sea with their cargo. Verse 2, he says, Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon. Sidon was a sister city to Tyre. It was Tyre and Sidon. Whom those who crossed the sea have filled. And on great waters, the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the river, is her revenue. And she is a marketplace for the nations. And so um, the great waters, the grain of Shihor, is believed to be uh, one of the names of the Delta Nile area in the Nile River coming out uh, into the Mediterranean Sea there in Egypt. Uh, the harvest of the river, that would be the Nile River that is being spoken of here. And that's where, again, um, 
Tyre would buy a lot of the grain and the wheat that they would then take and sell and became fabulously wealthy. It says she was the marketplace. It was like this was the marketplace for the ancient world in that area. came from the traders there of Tyre and Sidon. Verse 4, be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the strength of the sea saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children, neither do I rear young men nor bring up virgins. In other words, it, it was going to be the end of their population at this point. Now turn with me to Ezekiel. We're going to come back here to Isaiah 23, but flip to Ezekiel to your right, chapter 26. And this is where you get a lot of the uh, incredible details of the destruction of Tyre that was accurately and exactly specifically predicted by the prophet Ezekiel hundreds of years before it happened. In Ezekiel chapter 26 and verse 1, we read this. And it came to pass in the 11th year... On the first day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me saying. And this is believed to be the day that Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Ezekiel was a prophet of God. He was not in Jerusalem. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem prophesying to the people of God in Judah. Ezekiel had been carried away captive with Daniel and some of the royal court. Uh, to Babylon. And so Ezekiel was in Babylon, and he was ministering to God's people there in Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. He says in verse 2, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken, who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. So Tyre, once uh, Jerusalem fell and Judah fell to the Babylonians, Tyre was happy. They were glad. Now they thought perhaps they could go in and take gold and take spoil, whatever would be left from Nebuchadnezzar. They were going to go and they were going to clean up and take whatever they wanted after the Babylonians left. But that wasn't to be because the Babylonians then came against them after uh, Jerusalem fell. He says in verse 4, And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations. And indeed it was plunder for the nations, specifically for uh, the Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great when it ultimately fell, the island of Tyre fell uh, to uh, Alexander the Great. It's interesting that it talks about a place of spreading nets in the midst of her sea, a place of fishing. It is apparently still a place of fishing today, actually. You know, the rocks that are there are still a place where the locals go out with their nets, cast their nets, and catch, catch fish. And they've been fishing there for, uh, for, for thousands of years. Verse 6 says, Also her daughter villages, which are in the fields, shall be slain by the sword. 
and they shall know that I am the Lord. So it was the whole Phoenician Empire that, that, that was uh, basically destroyed. Verse 7, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, with chariots, and with horsemen, and an army with many peoples. So you notice here, Ezekiel is now predicting and prophesying. Remember, he wasn't there. He was in Babylon, and God was giving him this prophecy. He had heard that Jerusalem had fallen, and on the day that Jerusalem had fallen, he got this prophecy from God about the destruction of Tyre. And so he, God is showing him, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is going to come against you with many people, many chariots, horses, horsemen, etc. Verse 8, he says, He will slay with the sword your daughter in the villages, in the fields. He will heap up a siege mound against you. So they besiege the city there. Uh, build a wall against you and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering ram against your walls. And with his axes, he will break down your towers. Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, and the chariots. When he enters your gates, as men enter a city that has been breached. Verse 11. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. Now, he's been talking here specifically about Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying he's going to do this. He's going to do that. He's going to come here. He's going to do this to you. And then he pivots and he transitions, and he's no longer talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He begins to talk about they. Uh, and so he changes the way that the prophecy uh, is, is proclaimed. And, of course, this is exactly what happened. Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came, he besieged them. He finally broke in their walls. It was the first time they had been besieged many times throughout their history, but it was the first time that any king actually penetrated their walls and, and broke in their gates and, again, uh, killed lots and lots of the people, certainly killed all the people that were not inside the city walls, and then eventually got the gates broken down and destroyed everything, of course. But they had already taken everything that counted, and they had left on their ships, and they had relocated to an island in the Mediterranean Sea, about a mile uh, from shore. So Nebuchadnezzar was kind of frustrated by that. He didn't get any plunder uh, at that time. But it says here in verse 12, he changes from he will do this to they will do this in verse 12. It's very interesting. Verse 12 says, they will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses they will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. So the prophecy initially was for Babylon and for Nebuchadnezzar, and this took place in approximately 573 B.C. The rest of the prophecy came to pass 250 years later approximately with Alexander the Great. And this is exactly what the Grecians did to the city. They took the city apart rock by rock, threw it into the ocean, and used it to build a land bridge. Historians record this for us. As a matter of fact, some um, theologians believe that Alexander the Great may have actually read this prophecy, thought that this was a good idea, and because of this prophecy decided to follow it, and it actually worked. But it was written hundreds of years before Alexander the Great was ever born. 
He says they're going to throw your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. Verse 13. I will put an end to the sound of your songs, and the sound of your harps shall be heard no more. Apparently Tyre and Sidon were very well known for the music and for the musical uh, uh, you know, uh, instruments that people would play expertly and sing songs and mythologies to the ancient seafarers and the, and the travelers who came in off the sailing ships that they would park there or they would uh, stop there and then they would go on their way. And so he says, I'm going to put an end to the sound of your songs, to the sound of your harps. They shall be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets. And shall never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. And that's exactly what happened after Alexander the Great was done with them. Really, the only thing left for that city, there was nothing left on the island. It was completely destroyed. Uh, so much so that archaeologists barely discovered it in the last hundred years or so there in the, uh, in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, that it just would become a place for fishermen to cast their nets. And that's exactly uh, what has happened. It's so amazing, the prophecies of God in the scriptures. He says in verse uh, 15, Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Will the coastlands not shake at the sound of your fall? When the wounded cry, when slaughter is made in the midst of you? Then all the princes of the sea will come down from their thrones, lay aside their robes, and take off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling, they will sit on the ground, tremble every moment, and be astonished at you. And they will take up a lamentation for you and say to you, How you have perished, O inhabited one, by seafaring men, a renowned city who was strong at sea. She and her inhabitants, who caused their terror to be on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall, yes, the coastlands by the sea are troubled at your departure. Verse 19. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a desolate city, like cities that are not inhabited, when I bring the deep upon you and great waters cover you, then I will bring you down with those who descend into the pit to the people of old, and I will make you dwell in the lowest part of the earth, in places desolate from antiquity. With those who go down to the pit, so that you may never be inhabited, and I shall establish glory in the land of the living. I will make you a terror, and you shall be no more. Though you are sought for, you will never be found again, says the Lord God. And again, that is exactly what happened to them in 332 BC. This was written in. Uh, by the prophet Ezekiel in 586 B.C. And so it's just an amazing, amazing fulfillment, very specific fulfillment of prophecy. This is not like Nostradamus sort of prophecies that are so vague and obscure and weird, you know, that you could, you know, read it and not understand anything that Nostradamus is saying. These are very specific prophecies of God showing the prophets the future and what was going to happen to them. So we turn back to Isaiah 23, pick up in verse 4, where we left off. Be ashamed, O Sidon, the sister city of Tyre, for the sea has spoken. 
the strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor, nor bring forth children, nor do I rear young men, nor bring up virgins or young maidens. When the report reaches Egypt, they will also, uh, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. So this was going to hurt everyone there in the Middle East that, that they provided the ships to, to transfer all of the wares around. So Egypt would be hurt because this was the means of exportation that they would export their, their crops and their grains to Greece, to Rome, to all of the cities there along the Mediterranean Sea. Verse 6, cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you inhabitants of the coastland. Tarshish would be all the way up in Spain or southern Europe. That's how far the Phoenician Empire covered in their heyday. Verse 7, is this your joyous city? whose antiquity is from ancient days. And again, we know that this city was probably likely at least 2,400 years before Christ. So you're talking a, a, a very, very old ancient city. And no doubt that made them very prideful. They've been around so long. Whose feet carried her far off to dwell. Verse 8. Who has taken this counsel? Uh, who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traitors are the honorable of the earth. The Lord of hosts has purposed it to bring dishonor, the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. They were merchants. They were princes. They were honorable. They were wealthy. They were traitors. They traded and they made money and they were puffed up with pride as a result of their wealth and of their money and of their affluence. And so God basically said that he was going to take them down. The pride of that nation had come up all the way to heaven. And we have to remember that God hates pride. He hates pride. Because pride is like Lucifer. As a matter of fact, Lucifer, really his first sin was the sin of pride. That's what made him the devil. Because he was prideful. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be like God, but he also wanted to be worshipped as God. It's pretty fascinating. Uh, if you were here with us uh, a couple of months ago, we looked at Isaiah chapter 14, and we see this prophecy of the fall of Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. And we're told, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven or stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Verse 15, yet... You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. It's been said that Lucifer's problem was that he had an I problem. It was all about me, myself, and I. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. The five I wills of Lucifer turned him into Satan and he has become the devil. And so everybody who is prideful really 
uh, reminds God of this fallen angel. And that's why God hates pride so much within man. What is man that we would be prideful about anything? Who are we to be prideful against the God of heaven? Uh, and so pride always comes before a fall. And humility always comes before honor. And none of us are the exception to that rule. Because pride is the character and the nature of Satan. You remember when Satan came, the serpent came to Adam and Eve. Uh, he got them to question God. He got them to question God's word. Hath God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? Oh no, we can eat, but we just can't eat from this one tree, Eve said. We could eat from all the other trees, but just not this one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did they need to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They already knew good. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They knew the goodness of God. They had intimate fellowship with God. So really Satan was getting them and tempting them to experience evil. To get secret knowledge, dark magic, black magic. Sorcery, secret knowledge of things that man shouldn't understand, man should not inquire into, the secret things of the universe, the secret knowledge, and that's what magic is, that's what sorcery is, it's the black arts, it's the secret knowledge that the devil tries to give people to try and have power in this world, and so they rebelled against the word of God, they listened to the word of the serpent, they disobeyed the word of God, God said, the day that you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And indeed, they brought death upon themselves, and they brought death upon all the human race. And really, all of creation is under the curse because of the pride of Adam and Eve. Satan, the prideful angel who fell, who said, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be on the throne. I'm going to have all the other angels worship me, the stars of the heavens. He took a third of the angels with him. Revelation 12 tells us they became the demonic realm and the demons that we deal with today on the earth. And then he went to man and he got man to rebel against God. And that is pride. All sin finds its roots in pride. Whether it's drunkenness, whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's drug addiction, whether it's robbing and stealing from people or beating people up, violence. Everything comes from pride thinking, who do you, who do you think you are to challenge me? I'm better than you. I want what you have. I'm going to take it. And, and, and so it is, it is a very dangerous thing because pride is such a subtle sin that we don't see it in ourselves. And often we won't hear anybody when they challenge us with our pride. Because we're so prideful, we refuse to hear that we're prideful. It's the very nature of being prideful. You won't hear it. You'll think everyone else is prideful, but it doesn't apply to you. Jesus said, learn from me, for I am meek and lowly and humble of heart. You will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus was God. And yet he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done in submission to the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he went to the cross of Calvary and he died on the cross for, for your sins and for mine. He was the humblest man who's, who ever lived. Jesus was. And Jesus is the one who created everything. He has all power in the universe. And so when we're prideful, we act like Satan, like Lucifer. When we're humble, we imitate Jesus. And this is a very important lesson that we need to constantly check ourselves and remind ourselves because pride slithers its way into our lives and we think, well, who does they think they are to treat me like this? 
to gossip about me, but you gossip about others. To say this about me, but you say that about others. To do this to me, well, you do this to others. You see, it's total hypocrisy. The Pharisees were filled with pride. They were jealous of Jesus because Jesus had power that they didn't have. Jesus had popularity, popularity that they were jealous of. And they killed him. And yet they were the religious rulers of Israel. And so pride often masks itself in legalism and in religion. And it is such a slippery slope. In Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 12, another prophecy in the Old Testament specifically about Lucifer, about Satan and his fall. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. You were the seal of perfection. So the king of Tyre was being spoken of the human uh, uh, person. But behind this king, he's talking about Satan. We'll see here. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So Satan was a beautiful creature. Matter of fact, the Bible says that Satan comes as an angel of light to deceive us. He doesn't come as a scary, ugly monster. He comes as a beautiful, glorious, light-filled angel to deceive people. He comes as an angel of light. And God says, you, you were full of wisdom. You were perfect in beauty. Imagine, Satan was like, full of wisdom and he was so beautiful he was like the most beautiful of all the angels before he fell lucifer you were in eden the garden of god and every precious stone was your covering the sardius the topaz the diamond beryl onyx and jasper sapphire turquoise and emerald with gold the workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. Notice this, Satan was created. He's not God. Jesus actually created Lucifer before he fell. So Jesus and Satan are not spirit brothers like the Mormons say, sons of, you know, Elohim and their brothers and Elohim favored Jesus. So Lucifer became the devil and Jesus became the savior. That's what the Mormons say. That's not true. Jesus created all the angels. Jesus created those who would become the demons. But it's interesting that not only was he full of wisdom, he was perfect in beauty. He had all of these precious, uh, valuable stones in his body. But he also had musical instruments in his body. The workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes was, was prepared for you on the day that you were created. He had a gift of music. Lucifer was like the chief musician likely in heaven before he fell which would have meant that he was right there at the throne of God, in the presence of God, and then he became jealous, and he wanted to be worshipped like God. And that's what caused his fall, his pride. But it is interesting that he knows a lot about music, and Satan knows the power that music holds over us. And look how music has been led to lead our young people astray, and even, sadly to say, not just our young people anymore. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. A cherub was uh, like the seraphim and the cherubim. These, these were an, uh, a high order of angels. He was the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. 
You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created. Again, notice Lucifer was created. He's not equal to Jesus until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might uh, gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror, and it shall be no more forever. God's talking about the end of Lucifer. This is his end. He's going to burn in the lake of fire forever and ever. And all the people that serve him, all the people that worship him, all the people that reject Jesus Christ are going to see him for all eternity in the lake of fire and say, were you the one that took over the kings of the earth and that everybody followed and worshipped and rejected God for you and now you're like us here in hell in the lake of fire forever and ever because that is Satan's end. He's taking over this world, make no mistake about it. And the Bible predicted that he would, and he is, and he will. But that's not the end of the story because Jesus is going to come back and Jesus is going to destroy him. And he's going to cast him ultimately into the lake of fire and he will be destroyed in hell, in the lake of fire forever and ever. And all those who follow him. Again, pride is so satanic, uh, you know, Humility comes before honor, the Bible says. But pride always comes before a fall. We should never seek to promote ourselves because the Bible says that God brings promotion. Promotion does not come from the east or to, from the west, but from the Lord. God raises one up and he takes another down. He puts kings on their thrones and he takes kings off of their thrones. God raises up nations and he takes nations down. And so really the key is to just stay humble before God. In Proverbs chapter 6, it talks about the seven things that God hates. And I, I think if God says that there's seven things he hates, those are seven things I don't want to do, that I don't want to be known for. I want to know what does God hate? Because I don't want to be anything like that. In Proverbs chapter 6, in verse 12, we read this about the wicked man. A worthless person, Proverbs 6, 12 a wicked man walks with a perverse mouth. That means that he speaks perversion or vulgarity. Walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles with his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. Remember, the Bible says, whatever's in your heart will come out. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when people speak perverted words and use perverted language, that's because they have a perverted heart, according to the Bible. Perversity in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. Verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. 
Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Notice the very first thing God says that he hates is pride, a proud look. And then he goes on to say these other things that, you know, pride will cause you to do. Lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a wicked heart that's devising wicked plans, feet that are swift to run to do evil, again, a liar, a false witness who speaks lies, and someone who sows seeds of discord among the brethren are among the body of Christ. Very dangerous when you see this sort of character in somebody within the church. And I've seen it many, many times uh, over the years in the church. Very, very scary to see how deceived people can be. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 11, Learn from me, for I am meek and lowly and humble of heart. In, back in Isaiah chapter 23, we resume here in verse 10. Isaiah 23.10, overflow through your land like the river. This would be speaking of the uh, river Nile. O daughter of Tarshish, there is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will rejoice no more. O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon, arise, cross over to Cyprus, and there also you will have no rest. And so in the end, there was no hiding, even though they went out to the island of Cyprus to try and get away from the enemies. In the end, uh, they were conquered. Verse 13, behold, the land of the Chaldeans, this people, the Chaldeans would be the Babylonians, which was interesting, the land of Chaldea, the Ur of the Chaldees is where the Tower of Babel was. The Ur of the Chaldees is where Abraham came from when God called Abram to come out to the promised land, the land that he would show him. Um, but Babylon was really not a nation at the time that Isaiah was writing this. Uh, this was 700 B.C. Uh, they weren't a nation until they, they were actually conquered by Assyria at this point, And Assyria was the powerhouse at the time Isaiah was writing this. So God was showing Isaiah the future when the Chaldeans or the Babylonians would be the powerhouse, not uh, the Assyrians. He says, Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, this people which was not, at the time that he was writing it, they were nobody, Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers, they raised up its palaces, and they brought it to ruin. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Now it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten seventy years according to the days of one king. At the end of seventy years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Apparently Tyre was well known for its prostitutes, as many ocean beach communities are. Beach communities are known for prostitution and drugs to this day, and they apparently always have been. And, uh, and so uh, they had lots of harlots there. Lots of prostitutes, and apparently they would sing. They were uh, maybe the ancient 
sirens that Homer spoke of in the Iliad and the Odyssey came from the idea of these seafaring people where these sea travelers would stop at these seaports and they'd have these women who would play their minstrels and they would play their harps and, uh, and, and their lutes and they would sing to seduce men to come to sleep with them. The 70 years, the, the, the scholars have no idea what these 70 years are. Everybody's got to, di I've read different commentators and nobody really knows what the 70 years are. Chuck says that 70 years, Pastor Chuck, could be an indeterminate number. Like when Jesus said, forgive 70 times 7. It was like you have to just keep forgiving, not just 7 times, but 70 times. You lose count, 70 times 7. Um, but 70 years would be about uh, the average lifespan uh, of a king when it's talking about the days of a king. Uh, for, for, for a lifetime, uh, six score and ten. Take a harp, verse 16. Go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melody. Sing many songs that you may be remembered. I guess that's what they were known for, was their harlots who sang beautiful songs. And it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up, for her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for fine clothing. Again, really unsure as to exactly um, how that part of the prophecy, some, some prophecies are just lost to history because we just don't have the archaeology yet or we don't have the ancient records yet to kind of fill in the blanks. Uh, and this is one of those prophecies, the 70 years of her kind of uh, being restored and resuming her harlotries and, and so forth. And there's different opinions of that. I want to just quickly read a couple of verses out of chapter 24 because we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 24 next Wednesday night and also this Sunday because it is about the great tribulation period. Specifically, uh, chapter 24 of Isaiah talks about the earthquakes that will be taking place in the great tribulation period. Uh, we read in verse 13 of Isaiah chapter uh, 24. We could read verse 1 first. It says, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And so God is talking about the judgment that is coming during the great tribulation period leading up to the return of Jesus Christ to set up his kingdom. Uh, verse 13 of Isaiah 24 says this, When it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. Um, apparently they would shake their olive trees to get the olives down, like the farmers here in the valley shake their walnut trees to get the walnuts down. It is a violent shaking when they shake these trees uh, in order to get the fruit to fall down from the tree so they could pick it up. And God is saying that's how he's going to shake the earth at this time. He's going to shake it violently uh, during the great tribulation period. Skip to verse 18. It says, and it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. 
For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. As a matter of fact, the earthquakes are going to be so great in the great tribulation period, especially when Jesus Christ returns, that every man-made structure is going to come down. So that means it's going to be a bigger earthquake than like a 9.5 on the Richter scale. Uh, what's amazing today, guys, is that earthquakes are happening all over the world like never before. Like never before. There are volcanoes erupting right now all over the world. You have to look for this in the news. You have to look at the international news. I follow it. I follow international earthquakes in the news. I follow uh, volcanoes erupting in the international news. And you could go to like myshake.com or myshake.org and look at earthquakes over 5.0 that are taking place right now all over the world. There is a huge increase in seismic activity taking place right now on the earth. As a matter of fact, uh, just in the last two days, uh, there are volcanoes that have erupted in New Zealand where more than 12 people have been killed from a cruise ship. That happened a couple of weeks ago. There, there is a volcano erupting in the middle of the Congo right now with lava that's coming up out of it in the middle of the Congo. It's the biggest lava lake in the world. Uh, Mount Etna in Italy just started erupting again. Uh, the Mount Samora in Java in Indonesia after they had a 6.3 earthquake, this volcano started erupting and they had a tidal wave. All took place uh, in Java in the last two or three days. And then you have the earthquake in Hawaii that is erupting. Uh, there, I mean, it's, the earth is shaking, guys. There's a lot happening right now, which is exactly what Jesus said would be the case. Exactly what Isaiah said would be the case leading up to the second coming of Christ. We know that Satan is about to take the power of this world. He's about to take control of this world, and he's going to have what he's always wanted. He's going to require every person on the earth to worship him, or he's going to kill them. I don't believe we're going to be here for the great tribulation period. I don't think we're going to be here for any of the tribulation period, the last seven-year period of time for planet earth. But we are certainly living in days that this world has never seen before, where all of these prophecies are converging all at the same time. Uh, the one world government is coming, and Satan is going to take that one world government over. By 2030, the Great Reset is going to be in place. Uh, they are moving their pieces. All these powerful European bankers, these elites, these billionaires all over the world who have conspired together against all the nations that they represent. There's no more loyalty to national sovereignty. They are trying to take over the world and make a slave population uh, of this earth. So although we are uh, discouraged and disheartened by perhaps the elections, um, it just means that we're this much closer to the return of Jesus Christ at the rapture to take his people to heaven where we'll be with him forever and ever. So do not despair. Jesus is on the throne and Jesus is coming back soon. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for the specific prophecies in your word, Lord, that have come to pass. 
and the ones that have yet to come to pass. We thank you that you are 100% accurate, not 5% accurate like Nostradamus or some of these other supposed prophets, Lord of the people. Your prophecies have a 100% fulfillment. If the prophecies have not been fulfilled yet, they will be fulfilled in the future. Many, many, many of the prophecies, I would say most of the prophecies in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, have already been fulfilled exactly as you predicted, Lord. We thank you that you know the future. We thank you that you know the end from the beginning. We thank you, Lord, that you have not appointed us to wrath, but unto salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would continue to strengthen us. Lord, that we would be your people. Forgive us for our pride, Lord God, where we think that we are something that we're not, Lord, for we are nothing but dust. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow or variance of turning, Lord. And we thank you, Father God, that you never change. You said, I am the Lord, I change not. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Help us to be like you, Jesus, meek and lowly and humble of heart. Bless your people, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.